Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Today, it's great to have Tim Grover on the podcast. Tim is the CEO of Attack Athletics, Inc., which he founded in 1989 and author of the international bestseller, Relentless, From Good to Great to Unstoppable. World-renowned for his work with Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Reed, and thousands of athletes and business professionals, he appears around the world as a keynote speaker and consultant to business leaders, athletes, and elite achievers in every field. His latest book is called Winning, The Unforgivable Race to Greatness. Tim, thanks for being on the Psychology Podcast today. This is an honor. Thank you very much. When I wrote this book, Winning, I was like, okay. And I was, I don't know if the publicist or the book publisher reached out to you guys or you reached out to them. And I was like, seriously? They want, they want, they want to talk to me about this? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> well, um, the mind game, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, the, what would you say is like in the percentages and all the work you've done that, and I know there's the physical game, but um, early in your career, did you really try to get into the mind of uh, the competitors that you're, you know? Yes. You know, and, one thing when I, you know, Michael Jordan was my first client, first professional client, I should say. Mm. And, you know, he would always say how important the mind, the, the mind was. So the part of our training was always to not only train the physical, but once I got to know him better and knew what, how to get him to do certain things and how, what his thought process was and how he felt about winning and working and doing all these things. And we incorporated a lot of that stuff into, into his, into his training. Mm, I love that. Well, let's start, um, let's start with your, uh, with your childhood. We're, we're getting, we're jumping the gun a little bit here. <laughs> um, I want, I want you to tell me a little about your upbringing because from what I've read, you said you came to this country with your parents and you witnessed the yeah. sacrifice and the determination that they invested in your family. Can you talk yes. a little bit about that? Where did you come from? And tell me a little about your parents, especially your father seems like a really interesting cat. Yeah. So, you know, both, both my parents, both my parents are from India. Mm. 
So what happened was uh, I have a, I have an older brother. He was born in India, and then we all packed up and moved to the UK. And I was born in the UK. And then when I was four, my mom actually left when I was about, I'd say about two or three, about three years old. She came down to the, the States because she was a nurse practitioner and there was a high demand for nurses in the, in the States. So she was able to establish herself here. So basically my dad raised my brother and I for almost two years. And then when she was established, he brought, he, we, we came over with him. And the interesting part about that whole story was, I remember my dad, we got in a cab, we landed, we landed at O'Hare. And I remember getting in a cab headed to the address my mom gave and my, and you know, with some pretty big suitcases because we kind of came with, we came with everything. And my dad telling the cab driver to stop. And we weren't in the, they're like, okay, you know, I'm four. I don't know what's going, I don't know what's going on. And he told the cab driver to stop and let us out right here. And we were still a good three miles from our destination. And my dad just made a game out of it. And, you know, he, he's, my dad was a slight individual. He's not, not very, not very heavy, not very tall. Mm. And back then, remember the luggage didn't have wheels. Mm. So he kind of made a game out of it saying that, Hey, listen, you know, I want you guys to see what America is about and see what this mm. great city is and kind of made like a tourist thing. And, you know, We'd move the suitcases a little bit and then stop as we got tired, move those suitcases as we, as we got tired. And come to find out, he, the reason he told the cab driver to stop, because that was all the money he had in his pocket. Mm. Wow. He, did, he, didn't have, he didn't have any more money for the cab driver to go, to go any farther. And He um, told you this just, later on? In life, yeah, he told yeah. me this later. He told me this later on, and I just, you know, I, I said, "Dad, I got to ask you." I said, "He goes, he goes, let me tell you what happened." He goes, "This is this is exactly what happened." He goes, "I had I had no I had no more money," and my dad is a was a very accomplished professor of medicine in back in India, but his education they said did not transfer to the teachings in the States. So he said, okay, so he goes, what kind of job can you, what kind of job can I get? And he ended up getting a job at the university at Northwestern, what they called, it was called a degreaser. That was the, that was the title. And a degreaser's job description is after you have anatomy classes, you know, you have to, you have to dispose of the cadavers mm. and, you know, we're talking, you, we're talking back in the late sixties, early, uh, late, late sixties. So his job was, and then for people that don't know the, the medicine aspect of it, the cadavers are extremely heavy because, you know, with the fluids in them and, and, and all the, uh, the formaldehyde and all the other stuff that they use, the chemicals they used to back then, so when you have to dispose of them, you just can't put them in the garbage. You have to literally incinerate them. So his job was to dismantle the cadavers 
and throw them into the and throw them into the furnace and keep out the furnace. Now the interesting part about that whole story is we couldn't afford babysitters. My mom worked at night, my dad worked at the daytime. So when we were off from school, you know, obviously regulations weren't like they were now. My dad would take us, my brother and I, he would take us to work with him. And so I got to visually see what he was doing. And he said, no matter what happens, you have to be able to provide for your family. Mm. He goes, this is not the ideal situation for me, but this is what I need to do to provide my family. And there's certain things, no matter how young you are, that just stick with you. You know, people, you may not have other memories and you'll know more about this than I will. You know, I, I don't know how that all works, but you you may not have other memories of what happened when you were younger. But there's certain moments that you just you just don't forget. Yeah, they're called mnemonic memories. OK, M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you have quite a bit of these mnemonic memories. Um, and they really shaped your values and your whole your whole system you even put into place eventually with your 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 business. Yeah, it, well, ex- exactly. I always said there's watching my parents do what they do, how they made time for us, how they sacrificed, how hard they how hard they worked. You know, we didn't have we didn't have everything, but we had everything we needed. Mm. And it, it just kind of that that's that stuck with that stuck with me. You, you you know, people talk about seeing their parents go from from nothing to actually making something. I had two parents that that did that that changed the system of how the culture was. You know, to for my dad to be the first individual to say, "Hey, I'm I'm not staying in India." You know, to tell his mom, "I'm leaving." And be the first one. He, people always call me a rebel for what for what I did. Well, I always tell my dad, "Well, look who I learned it from. I watched you do it." Um, may I may I ask, is he still alive? He is not. He passed. It's going to be, it's going on three years now. Yeah, yeah. three years. My condolences. Thank um, you. Yeah, uh, is your mom still alive? Yes, my mom is still alive. Yes. And she, I mean, she must be so proud of what you've become. And I mean, did she get like tickets to the Bulls games? You know. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a crazy part about that about that story. So coming back, coming from the Indian culture, you have two career choices back then: <laughs> doctor yeah. being one, and a doctor being number two. You know, later on, they they was like, okay. If you want to be a lawyer, you can be a lawyer. Then they then they open up more to engineering and you know di- di- different things. But back then, that 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 was that was it. So when I went to college, like any other college individual, I kind of had an idea what I wanted to do. And my parents always said, you know, he's he's going to medical school. I told my dad, I said, I don't want to go to medical school. He goes, Well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to train professional athletes. And he was like, What is that? He goes, well, he goes, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know what that means, because obviously in those years, training was not. It hadn't involved like it has now where you have a bunch of you have a lot of professional athletes that have their own trainers and do, you know, have their own consultants and so forth. So this was ground. This was groundbreaking for me. And he goes. 
I'll let you pursue that, but you have to do one thing for me. I said, what's that? He goes, you must take the entrance exam for medical school. I said, no problem. I said, I, I, I will take that. So this is how keen my dad, my dad was. When I first took the exam, I totally bombed it mm. on purpose. Mm. On purpose. And, my, and I got the scores. I showed my dad. My dad goes, yeah, nice try. He goes, I've already signed you up for the next test. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he goes, I knew you were gonna, I knew you were gonna do this. And then I scored fairly high on the next one. I did get accepted into different uh different schools, but I, I still chose not not to go. I still chose not to go. And even, you know, you said my mom and dad, they're proud, yeah. but they were so accustomed to you you go to work, you have paid vacation, you have insurance. You have a 401k. So for them, that's that's that was success for them in their mind to know you have something steady. You have income coming in. That's how you take care of your family. With me, it's I don't even know where the next check is coming in. And I like it that way. That's what my that's what my win is. That's what my chase is to constantly figure out what's next. Where can I where what other arenas can I win in? Sure. You said in your book that you were the fat kid um, when you were young. And I, can you tell me what what changed from being the fat kid? Like, how did you morph from that into a pretty good basketball player until you had an injury? I know that you had an injury that kind of put a stop to it. But, but what happened in between those two things? Well, so if you've, if you've been involved with an Indian family, they love to eat. <laughs> and when you go to another Indian family, they make sure you eat. So if you visit two or three Indian families over the weekend, every you have to eat in every single place. Otherwise, it's it's disrespectful. And being in India back then, food wasn't as plentiful. So it was something that my parents wanted to make sure we had enough of. And and I ate. I I, de I definitely I, I definitely ate. The transition came when I went to high school. So when I started in when I started in when I started in high school, my transition to for the high school that I wanted to go to, the commute was over an hour away, mm. and that it wasn't a drive. That was taking two buses, taking a bus, taking a train, taking another train, and then taking another bus, another bus to school. Mm. So going to school. Making the basketball, making the basketball team, having to do my studies, come back on public transportation again, kind of limited the amount of free time I had and the amount of food that was a food that was available to me because your grades could not slip. Mm. Your grades, your grades could not could not slip. And I really enjoyed playing basketball. So I got into this. I always kind of worked out, but I got into this nice workout. I got into this nice workout regimen. And in order to be able to be a player on the team and not just sit down, I had to I had to drop. I, I just ended up dropping weight. And I had one of those coaches. Oh, I never he ran us. Boy, did he run us. You ever you ever work out so much you just you're too tired to eat, but you just forget to eat. Just like, I don't even want to lift anything in my life. I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't, that was it. That was his philosophy. 
What position did you play? Well, I, I'm I played point guard. You know? Wow. Uh, I used to, I used to be six feet, but through some injuries now, I'm probably closer to I say five eleven now. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something I don't tell many people on on this podcast, but I think you'll get a kick out of it. So I grew up with Kobe Bryant and was on the basketball team with I was the center in middle school at Balkinwood Middle School, and wow. I didn't I've never grown. Beyond, I thought I thought I was gonna be NBA. I thought like all this stuff, you know. I I never grew ever again. And then I eventually got cut from the freshman team in high school. Even though Kobe actually was kind enough, to, he was the he he signed you know to let me try out for the team, and he encouraged me. I I didn't get accepted, so I changed into a whole different realm of of being a nerd. But um, I think you'd get. I thought you'd get a kick out of that story. That that that, that is awesome. That is so yeah. funny. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even know we had. I didn't even know we had that in common. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, now you know. Kobe Bryant, but I got to see him play quite a bit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and you, well, you you contributed uh to his success, even. So. Yes, it, it, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. But like I always say, and you know, like from a psychology standpoint. The greater the athlete is or the greater the individual is, the greater the more successful the CEO is, the more successful the teacher is, the more coachable they are, the more they're willing to learn, the more they're willing to explore things because they know that that chase to win over and over again requires you to be different, requires you to have more knowledge, more ability, the ability not only to think for yourself, but to understand what others others are telling you. And the top of the top individuals that I've worked with, athletic and business-wise, they are the most coachable people out there. They understand what works for them, what doesn't work for them. They know exactly what they need. They don't know what what, what they need. It's the middle of the road individuals that are constantly want to have discussions with you and want to do things only their way. Mm. Such a good point. I've noticed yeah. that too, just in my own coaching of uh, personal coaching. But yeah, I, I, I yeah, you go, you look at the very few teams, professional teams, corporations have trouble with the high, high achievers. They don't. It's always the the ones in the middle or the ones in the lower that end up causing more distractions than, than any, than anybody else. So you like to, you like to work with people who are already at the top. Like, I feel like that's your preference. Is that right? I, I enjoy, I enjoy that because the challenge for me, the win for me, is to take somebody who's already so elite at what they do and increase that ability. You know, you can take it, you can take an athlete, you can take a business and if they're in mediocrity or average, you can show pretty good gains in that. But to take an individual who's already or a company or CEO that's so elite at what they do and just to be able to show that not even 1%, it's that 0.001% gain in their abilities, in their thought process, the way they achieve things. That's the constant challenge. That's the constant challenge for me because I really enjoy 
the details. Mm. And you know, the most successful people you that you deal with, mm. you hear this adage where it says, don't sweat the small stuff. They sweat everything. Yeah. Because the one detail that's not important that you say, oh, it's not important, maybe the most important to them. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a sort of, there's sort of like a winning mentality. Um, and, um, you know, do you ever find, uh, there are some people with, um, a, a victimhood mentality that holds them back from reaching higher levels of greatness? Like, have you ever worked with someone or seen someone who like everything is like a, like every little setback is like a, a big, you know, they're, they're a huge victim of some big, large thing. And then, it, and, and you see that holding them back. Yeah, and then I usually tell them it's the you have two choices during that during that thing. You can either be have the victim mentality or you can have the victory mentality. Oh, the victory, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Which is which one which one you want which one you want to choose. All right, the victim one is e it's easy because it's easy to blame circumstances, issues or you know, I I wasn't uh I didn't have this when I was growing up. I wasn't able, I wasn't able to do this. I wasn't able to do that because there's more people aligned with that information more because there's more, there's more support in the, in the, in the, in the victim category. Cause most people will tell you it's okay. You'll get another chance. You'll get so forth. What I'd always tell my athletes is if somebody tells you it's going to be okay, are you just settling for okay? Because that's what a victim mentality will settle for. They'll settle for okay. Mm. The highest achievers, they don't want anything to be okay. They don't want anything to be fine. They, they're only accepting great, unstoppable, the winning, the winning mentality. And that's how they keep thinking and processing informa information. So they never understand the victim, uh, the victim's mentality, victim's mentality, because they don't want to be, they don't want to be in the middle. There's a lot of comfort from others and from yourself when it that comes with the thinking or acting like you are the victim. You're always looking for somebody else to help you. You're always looking for somebody to pull you along, looking for somebody else to do the work for you. And to the point it's even like somebody to do the actual thinking for you. Mm. Yeah. I, I definitely, as we go along today, I would definitely want to unpack more of the victory mentality. Cause I think mm -hmm. that could even be like the title of this podcast episode. I always think in terms of like, that's a, <laughs> I, th I got a title for this one. I think it's, <laughs> that would be a good title. Um, so are you an only child, by the way? Uh, no, I have an older brother. Older brother is. I was going to say, opposite. is he into sports at all? <laughs> no, well, he's into sport. He's okay. into watch. He's into watching sports. But he chose the safe route. He's he's had a he's worked for the federal government for I don't know how many years. He's I've lost count. So he has yeah. a stable job. Yeah. Wow. The paycheck every two. The paycheck every two weeks. Well, he's got the paid vacation. He's got the sick time. He's got the four hundred one k. He's got the retirement plan. Amazing. He, he's the got, opposite a, of you. One hundred percent, complete, complete opposite. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, you two weren't identical twins, that's for sure. 
okay, so I want to. This is what I want to know. It's around 1989. Um, before we get to your work with uh, Michael Jordan and then that whole career, what I want to understand is your vision as a young man of helping professional athletes. Tell me about this vision you had, and how did you get this vision? I mean. Like, like, talk me through 1988. Talk me through 1987. I want to know, like, the. Do you know what I'm saying? Talk me through the years right before the, you know, the Pistons yeah. in '89 so, inspired you. Yeah. So I fin, you know, I, I finished uh, my education is I have a master's degree in exercise science, a bachelor's degree in, kines- in kinesiology, which is all related to exercise and working out and body movements and so forth. I had, I knew, all my education taught me what to think. This was the book, this is what you do, here it is, and then this is this is how you go along. But I had no experience. I really, I, I didn't have any experience. So what I did was, once you finish school, there's no way my my dad's gonna let me just sit around the house. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta do something, you gotta find a job, you gotta find a job. So I took a job, and I didn't want, the university actually offered me a position, you know, Nice pay and everything, but I was like, this is not what I want. This is not what I want to do. So I passed on that and I took a job at a local health club. The minimum wage there back then was $3.35. $3.35 with a master's degree. Wow. So I took the job because I knew what to think. Because my school told me what to think. I didn't know how to think. So what I meant by what I mean by that, and we talk about this in winning quite a bit, is I knew everything from a science standpoint of what athletes, how they should move, what they should do, but I didn't know how to implement my own stuff into it, my own thoughts, my own my own ideas. So that was one of the reasons I took that job in a in a health club, so I could become a. Even though I had the education, I still had to pass the test and wait my turn to become a trainer there. Then when I became a trainer there, I started to work with individuals and I really started to get the, really get results and started to do things that weren't, that other individuals hadn't, hadn't seen or they were accustomed to. And then from there I made a transit, you know, I started work, most of the individuals I started training were men Then I ended up working with a woman who had just, uh, who had just had a baby. I ended up getting her in great shape. So then I became the post, you know, I became the post nail guy. Hey, this is the person you need to hire. So each transition allowed me to give me the ability of how to think and do things differently. And then I saw this article in the paper where how Michael was tired of taking the physical abuse from the Detroit Pistons. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'm sure they'll find somebody. You know, there's an opening here. So what I did was, I wrote 14 letters. There's 15, there's 15 players on a bat on a basketball team, 12 active, three, they used to they used to be on the on the injured list. And I wrote 14 letters. Back then, remember, no emails, no cell phones, none, none of that, none of that stuff, no social media. And I sent the letters, put them in the mailbox. The only person I didn't write a letter to was Michael Jordan. Because I was just like, he's so talented, he's so good. Why does he? Why is he going to work out with somebody that's never worked out with a professional athlete? All right. He found this letter in somebody else's locker. 
pulled the letter out and told the athletic trainer and the team doctor at that time, find out what this guy's about. Find out what this guy's about. So the staff reached out to me. We went back and forth for three months. They put me, they put me through more extensive testing in those three months than I did in my time in college. And they didn't tell me who I, who, who, that, who I was going to be, who was interested in working with me. So, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know who it is. I'm thinking it's one of the lower end players and they just, he needs uh, some special attention they want to bring him along. So after three months, they say, hey, we want you to, um, here's the address. We want you to meet the client at this particular location. Okay, it was his, it was his house. You know, back then it was a house. It was still a nice house, but it didn't have security gates. It didn't have the number 23 on it. You just could walk up to it and you you ring you rang the door, you rang the doorbell. So I walk up to it, I ring the doorbell, and Michael Jordan opens up the door. It Did might you, be the last time Michael's ever answered the door for by, by himself for for himself. How did you feel? Well, I, you know, unfortunately, I was I'm not a starstruck person. Okay. I was not I was not a star star. And here's crazy. It's so much easier to to find information on Michael than it was any of the other players because he was constantly in the paper, he was constantly in magazines, he was constantly on TV, on interviews. So whether you wanted to study him or not, it it was kind of always in your face. So just by watching that, I was kind of like, okay. I know what what's what he needs, what he needs to play, how, how he can excel himself even more. So we sat down and he, we went back and forth with a bunch of questions for about almost 40, 45 minutes. And he just said, this doesn't sound right. Mm. And I said, this doesn't get any writer. I said, give me 30 days and see what I, see, let's see what happens. And 30 days turned into 15, into 15 years. Wow. He was 26 years old at the time. I just, I just did the Google, <laughs> the Google, Google search. So a really young man. Um, actually, there's a part of the story I think is really kind of cool. Um, you realized when you first met him, you realized that you were not, you were wearing, um, uh, what, Converse. what kind Converse shoes. Converse, and that's a, yeah. that's, whoo, that's a no, no. <laughs> that's a serious no, especially since he want the two shoe companies he wanted to do, to wear was Adidas and or Converse, and both of them said, no, we're not going to invest in you because we don't think so. You're, you're going you're gonna to be one of those players. So Nike was actually his third choice. So they, even something funny about that, so when I had the shoes on, when Michael Jordan opened up the door, I'm literally trying to take the shoes while I'm looking at him. I'm trying to take the shoes off with my, with my feet so he doesn't look down because <laughs> I know. I, and I eventually did take the shoes off before I went in the house. Big got big old holes in my socks. So I take the socks and I turn I, I turn them around so the holes are actually on the bottom. So now you have the holes on the bottom, but you have the dirty socks, uh, you have the dirty part on the top. I'm like, well, you know what? If he's looking at my socks, then he's not understanding what I what, what I'm saying. He's not understanding what I'm trying to put put in front of him. So I need him to notice he, I need him to notice me from the neck up, not from the neck down. Yeah. And do you think he ever, he ever saw those, those shoes? That, oh, what you so when I, when I left the house, he looked at the, sh he did look at the shoes. He looked okay. at the shoes down, down and he goes, never again. 
Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. He said, never again. I got you. <laughs> hilarious. That's absolutely hilarious. That's a great story. Um, now, he said of you, he said, quote, um, he said, he's, this is him referring to you. Tim Grover is the biggest asshole you ever meet, but he knows his stuff. You said uh, you really can't ask for a better compliment from Michael Jordan. In Michael Jordan's eyes, is being an asshole, does that have kind of a, maybe a different meaning? Like, does that mean like you're kind of like you're a badass motherfucker? Like, what what like, what do you yes. think he meant by that? Yeah. It, it means that like you're really confident and you're really confident in your abilities. You know what you're you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. And. You're not all going to always be a yes person. You know, when you have these super, when you have these superstar athletes, you know, everyone around them becomes the yes person, the yes person, the yes person. And when you know, when you're the asshole, you you have to disagree. You have to say no. This isn't right. This is what this is. This is what this is how it needs to be. This is why we're doing this. And you know, have a nice, friendly confrontation, as friendly as you can get with him. And not give in to what you know is right mm. and be able to prove it that way. So when he said that, when he said he's the big, biggest asshole, meaning he's not a pushover, mm, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to tell you exactly. He's not going to tell you what you want to hear. He's going to tell you what you need to hear. Mm. And most athletes and even CEOs and, and, you know, high performing individuals, they have a lot of friends. They don't need friends. They need allies because friends tell you what you what what you want, what you want to hear. Allies tell you what you need to hear. And so a lot of times your greatest allies aren't even in your friend's circle because they show up when they need to show up. They tell you what it is. They, they, they can point out where things are. You get you may get labeled as an asshole or whatever. I always say I'm that family member that nobody wants in the family, but everybody needs. Well, I mean, I, I do have some pretty close friends who, who keep it, keep it real with me. So maybe, well, you, you know what, you're for, you're for, you're for, you're fortunate that you're fortunate to have the, those mm -hmm. individuals. And I would even put them in a, I wouldn't even call them friends. I would call them, I would call them allies. allies. Yeah. Interesting. Because allies show up, allies show up no matter what kind of mood you're in, what's going on in your, what's going on in your, what's going on in your life. They support you through the good. They support you through the bad. They support you through the in, indifferent. And not only do they support you, they counsel you and they educate you and figure out ways to make you better. They don't settle for what's okay, or this is fine. They understand there's more, there's more to that. And that's why you have that long lasting friendship with those individuals. Yeah, I love that. Now you were there through the the whole Bulls dynasty. Um, I just can't, you know, my um my twelve year old self is like, you know, like going crazy right now because I I think I grew up in Philadelphia, you know, the, but I I'd like to think I was the biggest Bulls fan in the world, you know. Uh, I mean, I me and my friend Avi, we'd go, we'd like everything, you know. In fact, there's there's even this this funny story where I was like, we, we followed the Bulls team bus afterwards because I wanted to meet Michael Jordan and uh, uh -huh. and and Michael Jordan actually did, you know, he 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 was like really right in front of me and I was so uh -huh. concerned that my friend Avi wasn't there to see it that I that I was like, 
wait, wait, wait here. My friend Ollie's got to meet you. And and Michael's like, man, I can't wait here all day, brother, yeah. or whatever. And it's so funny because I laugh with my friend about that because I, I really cared about my friend. You know, maybe in that moment, I should have been more an ally than a friend. I, I missed a chance. I missed a chance to talk to Michael Jordan. But anyway, you were there during this dynasty you were front row seat um you were even like you know the whole like flu controversy you were in that hotel room when they delivered the pizza i mean you <laughs> right you yes. even you got the pizza good thing you didn't <laughs> eat the pizza it's a good thing you didn't eat it <laughs> yes um you know you've done it, your homework on this yeah like you like, oh. like you really <laughs> I, I i do i do a lot of uh, i do a lot of preparation for for my guests and i Obviously. yes i, I read so as Michael would say, evidently, that's his word. Evidently. Oh, nice, 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 nice. I read every word of of your new book and uh, watched interviews with you. Um, so that is um, really interesting. There's so many different kinds of like little nuggets and stories that wouldn't serve the psychology podcast, but just my 12-year-old self who's like, I want to know what it was like to be there front row seat. Can you just give me like an overall paint an overall impression of what it was like to be there during one of the most exciting winning uh, moments in the history of sports? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of under it's kind of undescribable. Mm -hmm. I mean, the things that I, I you would just you talk from a psychological standpoint, being able to watch one of the greatest athletes, if not the greatest athletes of our time handle all these diff different things and knowing what he had to go through, not only physically, but mentally and how he used everything as a learning process and as a fuel process, you know, in the book, uh, or I may have, I don't know if it's in the book, but I've told the story, you know, Michael, they, he was actually allowed to pull into the arena because of all the fanfare and all this other stuff. He would always stop he would always pull the car outside hmm. because there were fans that were lined up all the way around the gate. And he would always say, never drove, never showed up in a dirty car, was impeccably dressed. Well, and he would literally get out of his car and wave to all the, uh, and wave to the people around him hmm. because it was like, this might be the only opportunity these individuals get a chance to see me. They may never be able to afford a ticket, never be able to afford a ticket in the game. Right. And this is as close as if I can brighten up their moment for that, for that moment. And to think about to have to understand that mentality going into every single game, you know, every game to him, it, they, it wasn't just a game. It was the game. It was the game. I mean, the one thing I always said, Michael, all, every single game he played, whether it was preseason, playoffs, middle, he always gave us an aha moment. You were like, wow. You were just like, and then for me, I got so spoiled. I would see those things so frequently that you kind of just get, you, you kind of like, you get used to it. You get kind of, you kind of get spoiled and you get spoiled from it. And then occasionally he would just do something that you were just like, wow. But for me, it wasn't as enjoyable as a fan because I was watching with such intensity to see how he was moving, how, you know, 
to watch the uh, the way his ankle was positioned, the way his knee, how his hips were, how his fingers. I was paying attention to stuff that other individuals just wouldn't take, just wouldn't pay att- wouldn't pay attention to. Mm. So it's kind of difficult to sit there and watch the watch the game as a fan. And, and then when somebody when he would do something exciting, which was on a regular basis. The people in front of you would stand up. I'm like, sit down, sit down. I got, I got, because when he score, everybody claps when he scores the basket. But I need to see from a performance standpoint. Well, when he scored the basket, did he pivot right or did he pivot left after the basket? Because I need to have those calculations down because I can't determine tomorrow's workout until I have all I have all those de- I have all those details down. And, you know, just to see, the best way to describe it is you weren't at a basketball game. You were at a performance. It was like you were at a, it was like you were at a, like, you know, a Broadway play or, or the opera or the theater or something. And you were coming to see this unbelievable person, this unbelievable performer do do his thing and back then if you looked at the courtside seats you know people they they were they would literally dress up on the weekends they would literally dress up as though it's a it's a night out of town you would see you would see individuals in their business suits you would see the young ladies dressed up in, in, you know in, in their in their in their gowns and their dresses and everything it was like it was like literally going to a performance i don't know the last time you went to a game but this was a funnier part about it at halftime by the time the second half started everybody was in their seats Everybody, because they did not want to miss, they did not want to miss a moment. Now you go to a, now you go to arena. People are hanging out in there. Well, before the pandemic, they're hanging out in the tunnels. You know, they're waiting to use the bathroom. They're waiting to do all all this other stuff. Back then, everybody was in their seats because they just didn't know what was going to go next. And the constant flash of you know, and before every game, they used to have this announcement that say, "No flash cameras, please." Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, come yeah. on. <laughs> I went to some of those games and not I never went to a Chicago game and I'm I'm remissed about that, but when he came to play Philly, you know, I was I was there in the in the nosebleed sections watching Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. Although they talk about an intense rivalry over there. Oof. Yeah. 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 Uh uh Barkley. <laughs> yes. One of his fa- one of his fa- one of his favorite play one of his favorite places to play. Absolutely, because you know everybody compared him to Julius Irving, Dr. J, and Dr. J being from Philly. So yeah. he was like, you know, this is like, I have to pay respect to the man that they compare that they're comparing yeah. me to. Not only do I have to pay respect to, to that man, I have to outdo what that man did on that court. And what Julius Irving did was very special. Yeah, very special for sure. Um, okay. Let's talk about Kobe a little bit. Um, where did you first meet Kobe? And, um, I think it was like a fish store or something, a sushi store. Yes. Right? So, uh, I started with him in 2000, in 2007, he had reached out to Michael and said, Hey, listen, I'm having, I'm having severe issues with my knees. And he goes, I just don't know what to do. I've, I've tried everything. And, 
you know, I need, I need some, I need some help here. He goes, I just can't continue at the, I can't continue to play with how, how bad my knees are hurting. And I, Michael and I, I had already finished our work. He, he was, he was in the retirement and he just said, he goes, you know, give my guy a call, you know, give, give, give Grover a call. And what you described earlier, that was, that was what he told Kobe was like, he said, well, tell me about, tell me about Grover. He said, listen, Grover really knows his stuff, but he's the biggest asshole you'll, you'll ever meet. Well, Kobe and MJ had the same mentality. So he kind of, he kind of understood. So I flew out to California and right near the restaurant, there was a, you know, a little sushi place to go get something, go get something to eat. So I sit down there, I'm sitting in there with my family and we go down, we were eating something and here Lily Kobe Bryant comes walking in to pick up a, a, a takeout order. <laughs> Uh, and I just, and I look and I, and I introduced, we had met before briefly and he knew, I, he knew of me and he remembered the face. So I introduced him, I introduced myself, hey, da, 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 and you know, welcome and all this stuff. But that was our, that was our first meeting. And he go, and he goes, when you ready, when you ready, he goes, let me know when you're ready to start. I said, we can start tonight if you want to. He goes, we'll, he goes, we'll, st we'll start, we'll start tomorrow. I said, that's, per uh, that's perfect. And this is a story that didn't make it into the book. So he said, I'll see you at 3.30. Everybody else would have assumed it was 3.30 p.m. Yeah. But just like you did your homework on me, I did my homework on him, yeah. and I knew it was 3.30 a.m. A.m., yeah. And that was the test. That was, for, that was Kobe testing me. Yeah, yeah. That was Kobe testing me. If I and if I would have showed up at three thirty, he would have sent me home. Because one of the things in the interview that when word got out that we were working, we were working together. One of the reporters asked him and said, "Well, hey, you know, you hired MJ's trainer. How's uh, you know how's it going?" He goes, "He ain't done shit for me yet. I don't know." <laughs> really. Yeah. He goes. He goes. Yeah. I know what he's done for MJ and what he's done for other individuals. But those, that's for those individuals. What has he, what has he done for me? Wow. And, you know, that's, that's kind of like the psychology of the next win. All right. When you get that win, what, what is that next win going to do for you? And how are you going to, how are you going to get there? Just because you did it one way or you did it a different way or a previous way for a different company or an individual doesn't mean that's going to work for that individual. Yeah, you know, because no, the, the psychology of the, the the way they think, the way they the, uh, the way they move, the way they interact is totally is totally different. And I was actually honored that he said that because I didn't want him to go off of what I did in the past. I wanted him to go off of the results that I got for him. Yeah, well, you got him results. Yeah. Well, yeah. tell me about the phone call you had with him uh, one week before he died. Oh, this is, this is, this is a tough, this one's a little tough. So, yeah. you know, the all-star game was going to be in Chicago and mm -hmm. we had, he had already transitioned from, from basketball into his, into his life of, you know, entrepreneurship, author, script writer, you know, he'd already won an Oscar, won numerous 
uh, awards for his children's series of his books. And he was, you know, he was fully invested in the business, the business world. So we texted back and forth and, you know, we always said, we're going to see each other. Yeah. But you know, his schedule was busy. I was busy and it never kind of happened, but we made plans because he was going to come, he was going to come to, he was going to come to Chicago for some bit, for some business during the, during the office. We had made plans to um, mm. get, to get together. Mm. And mm. it never happened. Yeah. It's unimaginable, isn't it? Yeah. And even when I got the news, I was like, there's this, there's, there's, you know, I'm thinking this is fake news. This is something else. And then other people reached out to me and people that were close to him and, that, you know, different people that was like, no, this is, this is real. Mm. This is real. And it didn't literally probably three days later. That's when it kind of finally hit me, you know, because with him, you'd always be like, He's going to find a way to beat this. Mm. It's just, this isn't right. It isn't true. And then three days later, that's what it like. Yeah. It really hit me hard. And it's still hard for me to talk about. It's still really difficult. You know, one of the things that we talk about in the book is I used to always tell him, we don't have time. We don't have time. Meaning, you know, we got to keep moving. We got to keep pushing forward. We got to keep being better than the next, being better than the next person. And I sit back and I think to myself, boy, I wish I was wrong. Mm. Boy, I wish I was wrong. Did you, did you talk to him on the phone? Did he get a chance to a week before? Yeah, just, it was very brief. You know, a lot of the communications were text every now and then. Mm. But then I, I would tell him, I, I would be like, just pick up the phone. Yeah. Because, I, you know, people get distracted while they're texting. You can be doing something else. And plus, it's so much easier when you just get the communication in real quick. I just, you know, it's like, hey, Cole, KB, pick up the phone. I used to call him Bean. That's his middle name. So Bean, pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. All right. And he picked up the phone and then, you know, we chat, we chatted for a little bit and said, Hey, listen, and what, you know, in the line we book, it says, what are you doing? He goes, man, I'm chasing that next win. Just like you yeah. always, always, always chasing, always chasing the next win. Yeah. I have, um, I have a real, uh, first of all, I just want to say, I'm really sorry that you guys, you know, I'm sorry for everyone. I'm sorry for his family. I'm sorry. You guys never got a chance to have that meeting. I know it's really hard for you and I really appreciate you talking about it with me um he touched so many people you know and even all of our high school friends we were so upset yeah whether you liked him or not yeah you had to respect what he did yeah you had to respect his mentality you had to respect his work ethic you had to respect his results so that's like i said earlier it's not yeah you don't have to like you don't have to like these guys you know, everybody has their favorites and they have their fans and, and so forth. I mean, they look at you're in Philadelphia when he came back for that game and they booed him. Mm, yeah. Like his home, like his hometown. Yeah. Right. You know, stuff like stuff like that, stuff like that hurts. 
but he gave everyone something to respect about him. You know, people always say this, you know, you need to respect me. Well, you, I always say, well, you need to give me something to respect. Right. No one can say that he did not give each individual something to respect about him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I want to read a quote that you, um, that you said about winning. You said, I've seen winning in all its glorious generosity and all its excruciating cruelty. One day it wears a halo, the next day it has fangs. So if you kind of sign up for the winning business, do you kind of have to also just accept that coming along for the ride are going to be these, these real uh, lows of, your, of, of the quest? You know, there's going to be these moments where you feel like you're not winning at all, even? Yes, that's why it's called the unforgiving. That's why the book is called the unforgiving race. Because it, it's, it's, it's it, it is unforgiving. It's unforgiving. You know, everybody sees, one of the reasons I wrote this book is the highest achievers at the top, they cherish the halo moments, but they understand the win came when winning showed up with the fangs. That's what allowed them to achieve, what allowed them to enjoy, mm. rejoice in the win, in the halo parts. And they understand you have, you don't have control over what winning is going to wear on that particular minute, that particular hour, that particular day. You must be ready and prepared for whatever it's going to throw at you. And it is going to throw everything at you. It's going to throw everything at you. And the individuals that can relish and understand both and know what it takes to deal with both aspects, everything, you have your up, you have your down. You have your right side, you have your left side. A car has a gas, it, it, ha it has a brake. There's a go, there's a, there, there's a, there's a stop. So why shouldn't winning accept just one of those things? You have to accept it's going to show up with both of those. And when the pandemic came, came through, it wore the fangs for a long time. Mm, for sure. And that's a lot of stuff with the, what you said earlier about the victim mentality. Is they, they, the victim mentality is they don't know how, they don't know how to deal with the fangs. They're looking, they want to get to the halo, but they've never dealt with the fangs. A lot of people learned how to deal with fangs this past year, that's for sure. Yes, it isn't so true, mm. so true. Yeah, and for a lot of people, that was their first experience on the fangs, like real yeah, fangs. For sure. Yeah, this, yeah, this isn't this this isn't baby teeth. These are mm. these are like saber-toothed tiger. Like you go back into the <laughs> go back into the, di the the dinosaur days. It's that yeah, it's coming in like stuff that you can't even imagine, you can't even see. Yeah, this is why I love the psychological literature on what's called post-traumatic growth. I think you would really like that that work in the field of positive psychology. Are you are you aware of the field of positive psychology? Do you? I'm, what I'm sorry. Are you aware of the field of positive psychology? Do you do you read any about of this literature? I, I, read, I read tons of it. I read tons of it, 
And what I did was, I mean, I, I use a lot of that stuff in my, in my, when I train my business individuals, when I train, when I train my, when I train my, when I train my athletes, but again, I have to integrate some of my own learn, my own teachings, my own learning, my own education, what I've learned through my experiences and fit and figure out the puzzle that has many, many missing pieces. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Um, so what's the difference between competing and winning? <laughs> so I always say this, everyone, everybody knows how to compete. You know, every, everybody knows, everyone knows how to compete. You know, so you compete for things all the time in your, in your daily life. Everybody, you're going for this, you're going for that. You, you can, you can go, I, I'm a, I'm a competitor. Everyone says I'm a competitor. Well, most individuals are a competitor. You don't do this pot. You don't do this podcast just for fun. You're, you're competitive. You're <laughs> like, I got to, I got, you know, there's other podcasts that are out there like this, uh, that are in my category. Listen, I got to. I got to compete against them every single day. All right. But people stop at competition. They well, stop when they have, they stop at competing. And that's the, one of the big quotes that Michael, all, uh, excuse me, that Kobe always said. All right. Don't rest in the middle, rest at the end. Yeah. Competitors, people that compete, they rest in the middle. People that win rest at the end briefly. Yeah, I, I think that's really profound. But, you know, I, I do. It is it's good to love what you do when you're even if you want to win it. I mean, I do love this podcast. I love I have an intrinsic love for it. I just happen to be the number one psychology podcast in the world. But, you know, like that's just oh, you just don't happen. to be. There's something like that just doesn't happen you can happen to slip and fall on some ice <laughs> you could happen to find some loose change on the ground right you don't happen to fall into the number one this is not a lottery but let me ask you something because i i will i want to think this through with you i didn't my goal wasn't to win um and it it uh, I'm very happy that it's done so well, right? But I was driven by craft. I was driven by mastery, by um, by wanting to engage in and with other psychologists and other uh, intellectuals and people and really get into the science of uh, psychology in every kind of direction. Um, and then that kind of uh, resonated with people. Well, it did mm -hmm. not kind of, it did, you know, sure. resonate a lot. So it... it is winning winning doesn't always have to be the primary goal it, it, in order to win right is that right no it, 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 yeah, yeah. no it's not you know what i said listen it's not about the glory it's not about the payday right. winning is about the obstacles and challenges and the pains you go through to get to winning and you know what and you have to go through those things and somebody else may get the win right somebody may out somebody who doesn't work as hard as you do ends up getting the win. All right. Somebody who isn't qualified for a job, they end up get they end up they end up getting the win. So the winning is about going through the different obstacles. It, it, it's the that it's not about the it's not about the gl glamour. It's about the grit. It's about grinding for something that you want to take form of the way you want it to take form. And that's what you that's what you did. You said, okay, listen, 
I'm going to put this podcast together and this is the different people I'm going to study and interview and educate myself in a different format. So what you were doing is you were grinding, but you knew what the form of your end result was to look like. Most people just grind. And what happens if you just constantly, if somebody said, I, I hate this when people say, man, I'm grinding, I'm grinding. But what are you grinding for? Because if you constantly keep grinding something, what do you end up with? You end up with dust. You end up with nothing. Well, it's just like we've all been we've all been to different parties, different events, and you've seen, you know, these fantastic ice ice sculptures. Well, that ice sculpture starts off as just a block that has no it's a square or a circle or you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And you chip away into those things. And once you chip away at those things, you can see what winning what winning looks like. And then when you went through that whole process and the process was required, you know, there's this adage where people always say, you know, I, you, you know, you got to love the process. I disagree with that. The process is required. It's required. You, you can't get through wherever you need to get through without the process. Now the end result, which is winning, that's not guaranteed, but you must do the process. You must, and there's not, there's not a single individual I know that loved 100% about every single process they had to do to get to that, to get to that end result, but you still have to do it. You know, when you played back, listen, you played basketball, I played basketball. You have to do the wind sprints. You have to be in shape. You have to be able to run. Yeah. Those are not fun. No, <laughs> no, they're not fun. And I, I'm going to read a quote of yours that I think relates to a lot of what you're saying. You said, you can be the kindest, most gentle person in the world and still be competitive in every way. This is about quiet desire. I actually really like that phrase, quiet desire. Um, hunger, adrenaline, pain, fatigue, envy, pressure, so much pressure. I think that relates to what you're saying. Um, what I want to... Yeah. You did. Just think yeah. about it. You, don't, you didn't go through... The pressure is up in here. You know, the pressure to win, the pressure to succeed, it, it's it, it's it's all mindset. It, it, it's up in it's up in here. You know, winning and this book and what what I'm trying to pass isn't just about athletes. It's about all of us. It's the mental process of what you have to go through before you even get in the race. Mm. And, and you went through the whole process and understood of what it was gonna take now, then you said, you know what? Now I'm about to get in this unforgiving race. And this race is gonna be unforgiving. I don't know if I'm gonna win. I have no idea if I'm not gonna win. But guess what? If you never got in this race, you had no chance of winning. Hmm. Yeah, my grandma always used to say, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Yeah. <laughs> but um, let me, let me push you on something for a second because I wanna get your thoughts on this. Like when I hear uh, the word winning, I tend to think of something like a zero sum kind of thing where like um, in order for me to win, people have to, some other people have to lose. What if some people, you know, what if some people's goal, you know, their their sense of winning is to like uplift as many people as possible. Like they, they're not in this like sports kind of mentality about winning. Um, 
what could what could winning look like? You know, it, as you define it, in other fields where it might not be so obvious that that word is, you know, like if you start a nonprofit and you want to like, in, your winning is helping kids in Africa. You know, like, um, what does that look like? You know, does it always have to be zero sum in some way that you're you're tearing down a competitor? Does that question make no. sense? Yeah, yeah it, does, it, it does make sense. So it, that's the when you can uplift other individuals in, a, in, a, uh, in winning, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate win. And, nice. But in order nice. to do that, yeah. yeah, in order to do that, you have to be a little bit selfish. And, and that's the part that people don't understand. You have to take care of self. You, you know, if you look, if you look at selfish, all right, people look at that as a bad, as a bad word, but they love to give different twists to it. You know, they love to give the, you know, uh, it's just like, all right, me time. Mm. Well, all right, that's selfish. All right. That's, that's something you're doing for self. All right. You know, my man cave. That's like. Leave, leave me, leave, leave me alone. That's my, you know, boys and girls night out. Those things lead. When you explain people selfish in that way, it's acceptable. But when you, in order to take care of others, in order to take care of your teammates, in order to take care of the, the not the nonprofit, in order for other people to win, you got to take care of yourself. You got to be a little selfish on yourself. And that allows you to, to give more to other individuals. The more you have of yourself, physically and mentally, the more ability you have to give others. And the way Kobe described winning was he said, winning is everything. And what did he mean by that? How do you feel? When you win, when you have, you have this sensation of a win, you're like, okay, even in a movie, you watch a movie or whatever, there's this euphoric feeling. When your kids win, same feeling. When your family wins, your same feeling. When your friends win, same feeling. When your allies win, same feeling. When the kids that you are having the nonprofit for, and you get to see them smile. Their win is their win is your win. Hmm. You don't have to always tear down the 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 individuals to get that win, but you have to understand that winning has a different language than what everybody else speaks. Thank you so much for that clarification. I've I've been wanting to ask you that question, so thanks for answering that. Can you tell me a little bit what you're up to these days? You know what 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 fires you up the most right now in, in your life? Well, you know, when we first wrote the book Relentless, a lot of the stuff that we, the media stuff, different that we talked to, was more sports was more sports related. What this book has done is being able to open up doors and being able to speak to individuals like yourself and get the word out of my lessons, my teachings. This is what I want. This is what I want to do now. I want to be able to give what I saw and what I lived through and what I've experienced and what I've learned to other individuals and say, hey, 
it's not all about the, the sparkles. It's not all about the sprinkles. This is what it, this is what it, this is what it takes to get into the race to win. And your definition of winning could be completely different than anybody else's. I mean, I'm still in the, I'm still in the line. I still do consulting for a lot of professional athletes and a lot of organizations. I do consulting for tons of businesses, very high level CEOs and to watch them win. Yeah excites me i mean that was the biggest thing to just to see my athletes what they went through for them to get that moment and it was just a brief moment of win to watch other individuals to win to what to i i want to be able to see more people understand their definition of winning and what winning means to what winning means to them and it's different for every individual out there beautiful i feel like i feel like i see you tim grover you're 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 you are you are a tough guy but there's also this uh this side of you that this this emotional tender side of you dare i say that wants to help people realize their full potential and that makes you feel really inspired and uh and and good so i see you (laughs) thank thank you you know we get individuals all the time so you know your talk or your book or something, you know, it changed, it changed my life. And I always tell these individuals, I didn't change your life. You changed your life. Mm. Uh, You actually changed, you took the action, you changed your thought process, you changed your mindset, you changed your mind, you pay, change your mindset. We may have assisted and helped and gave you some clarity, but none of my books tell you what to do. Mm. All right. You've been your whole life. People have been telling you what to do. Psychology is about doing what you do, what makes you successful, what lights your what lights your fire, what gives you clarity up in here. And nobody can give you that. They can explain it, how other individuals do it, how this individual do it, how this individual did. But you still have to add. You can have you can build the whole cupcake but you still have to add the frosting and the sprinkles in order to get that and to get that desired taste of winning that you want. Uh, well, let's, let's end there today, Tim, man, thank you so much for chatting with me today on the psychology podcast. And I, I truly wish you all the best in this book tour and uh, with your, uh, with your business and helping others. You're not done helping. You're not, not done no, helping I, people. I, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. Scott again. Thank you. Listen, thank you so much. You, you have no idea. This is, this is an That's honor cool. for me to do this. Not one, because it's a completely different avenue than I'm accustomed to. And I won't even say two, because you're not two, you're number one. One, to be a guest on the number one podcast (laughs) in the world. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you'd prefer a completely ad-free experience and would like early access to new episodes, you can join us at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.